Uh, This morning's reading you'll find on page 1029 of the Blue Church Bibles and it will be on the overheads. It's Luke chapter 3, 23 to Luke chapter 4, 13. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mahat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jenai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Ezlai, the son of Nagai, the son of Maith, the son of Mathatius, the son of Simon, the son of Josac, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanne, the son of Risha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shital, the son of Nirai, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Elisa, the son of Joram, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elkakim, the son of Meli, the son of Mina, the son of Mattatai, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amimadad, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Zarag, the son of Ruah, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Araflax, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lemech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. There for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up into their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. 
Well, you can be on a Bible reading roster for 30 years and never get a genealogy, but today was your day, Gary. Uh, and well done. Brilliant, brilliant work. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, let's, um, let's pray briefly uh, as we come to God's Word and consider this question about what Christianity is about. Let's pray to God. Our Lord God, please be with us. Uh, please show us the truths about Christ and about ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is number two in a three-part mini-series from Luke 3 and 4, entitled, What is Christianity About? It's kind of an overview, but we are looking at the text as we go. We'll probably look at some other texts too. Last week, I suggested that it's about the real world into which God has spoken calling human beings to repent in light of the coming of Jesus. Real world, God has spoken, calling to repent in light of Jesus. Ultimately, Christianity is about Christ. And uh, as we saw a few weeks ago during Advent, if you were here when I came and spoke then, uh, Jesus', Jesus coming, his Advent, is in two parts. There's his first coming, which we celebrate at Christmas, and then his second coming, the return of Christ when he comes in glory to judge the living and the dead, which it says multiple times in the New Testament. And uh, when we do get to this Acts series in February, uh, there's actually a, an in-between coming of Christ as well, in a sense, that happens via his spirit in between these two comings, his first and second coming. But we'll, we'll see more of that in a couple of weeks. Christianity really is all about this guy, Jesus, which raises the obvious question, what's so special about him, that he is the center of Christianity. What about all the great Christians of history or the great Christians that we might know uh, in our lives? What about all the great principles of the Christian faith, the ethic that we, you know, that we hold to? Aren't that, why aren't they so central? Well, last week I said that Jesus is more than an inspiration. Uh, he is our salvation. Those who turn to him... He saves from the coming judgment by taking that judgment upon his own shoulders in our place. This is an act of God's extraordinary, wonderful grace and love towards humanity. So when we're talking about Christianity, we're not just talking about a better way to live. We're talking about an intervention. An intervention by God in the history of the universe and the human race. The fact that we're saved from peril, uh, and that, that's kind of one way of thinking of our faith, saved from peril, not, not congratulated for good living. That's not the way we think about Christianity, but we're saved from peril. And that tells us something important about ourselves, something we often don't really want to consider. Uh, that is, it's as if we're on death row and we've had a reprieve. Now, how did we get on death row? Uh, you know, what did we do to get there? Um, We'll have a bit more of a think about that next week as we think about what Jesus did and how that works. But our focus today is on who Jesus is. Why do we worship him? Why do we worship Jesus? Is there any other person on earth that we would worship? Uh, traditionally, we've, we've worshipped kings and queens uh, you know, you bow down to them and you give them the homage, the homage and loyalty. 
uh, of their office. But our worship of Christ is different from that. It's on par with how you might worship a divine being rather than a human being. So today we're looking at Jesus' credentials, who he is. Why are we worshipping him? Why, why do we follow him with our lives? Why do we make sacrifices to him that hurt? Why do we proclaim him uh, into the world? And I have three points. I didn't get them to early enough to get an outline, but I'll tell you what they are as we go. We're looking at this text from Luke, but as I said before, there'll be other texts as we go. Point one, if you're taking notes, point one is Son of David, Son of God. Who is Jesus? Son of David, Son of God. Now, I don't know if any of you have researched your own genealogy or ancestry. Do we have any real ancestry aficionados here? Um, people do often take a great interest. I don't know if you've seen you know, those shows on TV where people sort of dive back into their history. Um, we, we kind of wonder if it'll tell us something interesting about ourselves, if we can find out where, where we've come from. My brother-in-law recently discovered that he's de descended from the Vikings, and we think he probably is too. <laughs> what, what about you? Are you descended from famous people? Maybe a royal family connection there. Or perhaps from oppressed people or poor people throughout history. After all, that is where the majority of the population of the world throughout history have been, the oppressed and poor peoples. Last year, my grandmother turned 100. Wow. I went to her birthday party. It was a lot of fun. We, uh, we had this large hand-drawn family tree out on one of the tables. And, you know, we poured over it for a while. I took a photo of it so I could... Remember it. And there are names on there going back to my great, 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 great grandfather James. And he was a laborer born in Cambridgeshire in England. And he came to England with his wife in 1852 on the ship The Persian. Probably after hearing about the discovery of gold. We were the original gold diggers, not the only, only ones, of course. There were lots of people who came out from England at that time. Before that, though, we have absolutely no idea, you know, where did they come from? What's their heritage? Not sure. I'm sure people can go further back with their family <coughs> trees. But in comparison with my seven generations there, Jesus' 75 generations looks pretty impressive, don't you think? 75 generations on his, on his the, the, the tree there. You know, that's a lot when you're trying to count great, great, greats, isn't it? And, you know, and you're trying to compare the person who's number 65 with number 67 or whatever. And how many greats are we talking here? Uh, clearly, this is a society or a family for whom this ancestry stuff really matters. How else would Luke have had access to these names if they hadn't kept records of this? And, in fact, um, you know, most of the names that we heard read, we have no idea who they are. Uh, and yet, this is a special family uh, here, the definition, if you're doing ancestry search, the definition um, of hitting the jackpot with your heritage, the definition is you find royalty in your family tree. I'm descended from royalty. And right here, 40 generations before Jesus, is Israel's greatest monarch, King David. That's a find. Uh, he reigned around 1,000 BC, 1,000 years earlier than these documents. 
and obviously being descended from the greatest king is pretty cool, right? But it's more than that. It's pretty significant. Does it give you some kind of claim to the throne, do you think? Is this the jewel in the crown that Jesus, Jesus actually has a claim to the throne? You know, maybe he could have sat down with King Herod one day. Or, you know, why not just go straight to Caesar? Uh, I know you're a reasonable man, Caesar. Uh, this genealogy might seem to indicate that I have a claim to the Jewish throne. What do you think? Well, quite apart from the obvious, likely Roman reluctance to just hand over part of the empire, uh, there's another problem. This isn't actually the royal succession. This isn't the line of royal succession. It is a line that establishes Jesus' connection, but not the line of royal su succession. That line is documented in 1 and 2 Kings. And the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah are effectively wiped out by at the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions, respectively. And then Israel, the nation, is kicked around by various uh, local empires like a football for over 500 years. Um, it doesn't mean that there weren't still descendants of David around. It's just that none of these names would have meant anything at all to the Romans. But to the Jews, who knew their scriptures, there was the promise. In 2 Samuel chapter 7... It's one of those chapters in the Bible that if you're going to learn sort of just 10 chapters in the Bible and what they're about, this is definitely one of them. In, um, in 2, Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God tells King David through the prophet Nathan, God says this to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's the promise, forever. So God is going to establish a descendant of David as his own king over Israel who would build a household for God's name. It would be his anointed one uh, who would become known as the Messiah or the Christ. And when this happens, it won't be yet another temporal kingdom. It will be an eternal kingdom. It will never, ever end according to the promise and i think that is the kind of point that luke is making by including this genealogy in his gospel it's not just for you know trivial pursuit it's a pretty significant point this man jesus is david's offspring he qualifies under the prophecy and so you see at the very end of the geneal genealogy where it also says son of god as well and so the idea is that Jesus is God's man to establish God's household. Not only does he have a link to King David, he also has a link to God himself. Now you may be wondering, okay, that's, that's right, he is the son of God. Um, by calling him the son of God here, is Luke trying to show us the divinity of Jesus or the humanity of Jesus? You know, trying to, is he trying to establish that he's God or is he trying to establish that he's man here? Um, and can you establish that he is God from this passage? Not sure. If you were here last week, you may recall from the verses immediately before this passage that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the river and as he's coming up out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes on him like a dove 
and a voice comes from heaven saying, you are my son. I love you. And then immediately after that, Luke goes into this genealogy. He's just been told that you are God's son. I think what's happening here is that Luke is actually laying out a foundation for both Jesus' divinity and his humanity. You know, they're both there, even with just in this just within this chapter. And as Jesus' ministry unfolds over the coming chapters, we will see more and more evidence of his humanity. But we're also going to see more and more evidence of his divinity. But here, it's, it's the launch pad. This is, these are the foundations that Luke is laying. You know, what are we going to make of this divine voiceover? Followed immediately by a list of his human ancestry. What are we going to make of that? Well, I think what Luke wants us to do is to keep our eyes open. Find what's going to happen to this person. What are we going to see about him? Which leads us to point two. Point two is, who is Jesus? Man of trust, man of righteousness. Man of trust, man of righteousness. Now, righteousness sounds like jargon. It really just means rightness, being in the right before God. And so we, we, we flick over into Luke chapter 4, and we see that Jesus is tempted by the devil. And we come to a really important moment at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. If he'd failed here, the whole thing was off. You'd, you'd wonder if he was God's man after all. And, and before we dive in, I, you know, I want to ask you the question, how do you go with temptation? Do you have a besetting sin? You know, one that's hung around like a bad smell for a long time. Perhaps it's, you know, today's obvious sin. It's the one that kind of often springs to mind in, in the today's visually driven, dysfunctionally sexualized society, that the question of porn. Uh, where people are objects, objects, where people are useful to us, they're like a, a, res a resource uh, for getting some kind of pleasure, um, especially if they're photographed and enhanced in particular ways. And where people, real people suffer, and where real pleasure is out of reach. Uh, that's just one of today's typical besetting sins. For you, it might be quite different. Uh, you might long for personal fulfillment in your career. Or you might long for personal fulfillment in your family. That might be your temptation. Maybe you never thought of that as a temptation. Or you might long for a personal fulfillment in your possessions. Or it might be quite different. You might struggle with honesty. There's just this constant flow of little lies and you just can't you can't change that you feel the potential list of temptations for us is endless and it is something to be vigilant about what what are your temptations your besetting sins and i think they're often slightly different for different people well hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says this about jesus it's describing jesus as as our high priest our representative and he says this we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, as if a high priest is kind of out of reach, out of touch. No, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, 
yet he did not sin. Jesus was tempted in every way. Yeah, that's, that's interesting to think about, isn't it? And what's happened here is the Spirit of God that came upon him in, at his baptism in, in, the, um, in the form of a dove. The, the text says the Spirit of God is what sent him out into the wilderness. So for some reason, God wants him out there and he wants him to stay there and experience something. In South Australia, we don't have to go very far to get to wilderness. Uh, you know, you can drive to the Riverland, for example, and then get out of your car and walk north for 40 days. You know what's out there? There's not much. Um, you'll be wandering around in very inhospitable territory. There's not much there to support life, uh, let alone keep you comfortable. And uh, Luke has one of the understatements of the century. Uh, I don't know if you saw this as we w went by, but he said that... Um, Jesus ate nothing during those 40 days, and at the end of them, he was very hungry. It doesn't even say very. It just says he was hungry. Uh-huh. Uh, and so what you have here for Jesus is a position of immense vulnerability. Can you put yourself in that, that Im imagine being in that state for just a moment? You know, we too are very, very much more likely to sin when we are vulnerable, maybe you're tired or you're frustrated or you're dispirited. The devil's first temptation is, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. You can fix this hunger very easily, Jesus. There are plenty of others who wish they could deal with their troubles as easily as you could deal with your troubles right now, Jesus. He's got a, kind of got a point, don't you think? It's a good idea to turn this bread. There's a, there's a rock there. It could be bread. You could eat it. You could deal with your problems. And you know, a lot of temptations seem pretty reasonable. What's wrong with looking as long as I don't touch? What's wrong with wanting the kind of family life that will make me happy? What's wrong with prioritizing my career if it's going to make me and perhaps my family more financially comfortable? What's wrong with that? Seems pretty reasonable. What's wrong with the Son of God turning a stone into a piece of bread when he's ridiculously hungry? Now, we don't know if the devil here is visible to Jesus in some, you know, some way? Is it an audible voice? Or is it a spiritually spoken lie that enters Jesus' head? The devil has only one weapon against us, and that is the weapon of untruth, telling lies. But he has many ways of presenting those lies to us. And I think we often speak, we often experience, I should say, spiritually spoken lies. We often hear messaging in our minds that in big or little ways undermines our trust in the word of God. Jesus answers the devil with a quote from the word of God. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and, he's, and he, the quote is, Man does not live 
on bread alone. And the rest of that verse says, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, he's not telling us that we should all just stop eating and just read, read, read the Bible. He's not saying that. Uh, no, again, he, he is uh, identifying with sinful Israel, this nation that he's come to represent, just as he did with, with this baptism of repentance. He didn't need to repent of his own sins, but he still gets baptized. He's identifying with Israel, uh, who, you may recall, spent 40 years in the wilderness, different context, but still that number, 40, is very symbolic here. He's identifying with Israel, who wandered around without having a food source, but God supplied food for them. And, um, you know, if God fed Israel with manna, then he could supply Jesus' needs in the wilderness also. And for Jesus to take control here and to look after number one would be a direct act of distrust in God's ability to provide for him. That's the lesson he's teaching us. And here's the thing. Distrust in God is the very heart of sin. That's the very thing the devil wants to exploit in you. And he does that with doubt, with um, lies and, and exploiting your doubt. You know, can we really trust God to look after us? You know, if I do this, if I follow him and it costs me, will I really be better off? The spiritually spoken lies, they say, no, you've got to look after yourself. Who else is going to look after? Oh, that's the, <laughs> that's the question we've got to stop ourselves asking or answer it correctly. Uh, it's not just untrue. It's, it's wrong that God won't look after us. Uh, in contrast, what we have here is Jesus, the man of trust. You see, what makes him the man of righteousness it's not just that he's you know, perfect and he always does the perfect thing. It's that he is the man of trust. That is at the very essence, uh, that is the very essence of his righteousness. Trust in God is righteousness. Always has been. Always will be. Now, trust is tested in an ongoing way in our life. You don't just get one temptation and then move on to easy life. And the devil has more temptations for Jesus, designed to orient his trust more towards himself than towards God. And as usual, his lies are actually half-truths. They're not blatant contradictions. The devil offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world, as if they're his to offer, right? That's interesting. Authority and splendor. Jesus, I have this and I can give this to you. The best the world can offer. And you know what? Jesus partially agrees with him. Not, not so much here, you don't see it, but in, in John's Gospel, there are three times in John's Gospel where the label he gives to the devil is the prince of this world. Prince. He's royalty of a kind in this world. There is authority and splendor to be had by bowing to the devil. We have seen it so many times. But it's not the whole picture. When Jesus refers to him as the prince of this world, he says it three times in John, and the three things he says alongside it are, the prince of this world no longer has control over me. 
no, has sorry ha, no has no not no longer has no hold over Jesus. The prince of this world now stands condemned, and the prince of this world will be driven out. That's the picture that Jesus knows because of his knowledge of the Word of God, and we know that too. Back here in the wilderness, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy six. He seems to like Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the next temptation, the third one, quotes from the very same chapter. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. It's a command. But it's based in a reality that we have to trust. And so Jesus here is unequivocal that he is God's man. No one else's. God's man. Yes, we know that he is God incarnate. Surely that brings with it immense power and possibility. But his job here is to be a man. A man that belongs to God. A man of trust in God. Unbreakable trust in God. A man of righteousness. And a man like no other man. Because there aren't any. Isn't it tragic? A tragic thought that Jesus is the first man in history ever to be fully obedient to his maker. It does raise questions, doesn't it? Uh, like, why did God create us with the ability to turn against him? To not trust him? Why has every man and woman failed to live as a person of trust in God? Failed to be the person of righteousness. Does this mean that God has actually failed? I don't know if you ever find yourself asking those kind of questions. They're, they're legitimate questions. Or is this part of the marvelous, unsearchable wisdom of God that there is a plan for stirring our trust in God, for growing trust, real deep trust in God? Because now... We totally need Jesus for survival beyond this life. There's no other option. He has made it crystal clear that without him there is no hope for anybody because God's wrath is kindled against us. The Bible tells us that over and over and over. And yet here is the righteous man who bears our judgment. And, and there was nothing about his life that deserved God's judgment. He was the only human being who ever lived who didn't deserve God's judgment. And yet he's the one who goes and takes God's judgment and he takes it for us so that our only hope is to put our trust in God, which is what we were made for in the first place. Is it possible that he's trying to stir our trust in him? Deep trust. So there's, a, there's just, thinking about this, there's a, there's a kind of exchange here. Christ gets our unrighteousness and he bears the penalty for our unrighteousness. But it's a coin with two sides. We get his righteousness. He gets our unrighteousness. We get his righteousness. It's like a trade. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 21. 
Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, there's a swap. Because of God's great love, he, he's determined to save us from our sin and so he takes our unrighteousness to the cross to be justly punished and he gives us his righteousness so that we too can be people of God. This is extraordinary. Isn't it wonderful? The forgiveness of our sin is no small matter. It comes at extreme cost to God. But it enables us. In fact, it demands us to become men and women of trust. It's our only way forward. So we're looking at the question of who Jesus is, and, and we need to pull things together, which brings us to point three. God, man, or God-man. God, man, or God-man. It's interesting that uh, the devil, when he's tempting Jesus in the third temptation, uh, he quotes from Psalm 91. Because like many Psalms, this, this Psalm contains the promise of the ultimate exaltation of God's faithful, anointed King of Israel. It's a prediction about Jesus and his exaltation. In the psalm, the, this promise that he would be that Jesus would be exalted is grounded in the faithfulness of God's man. It doesn't mention Jesus' name, but you you know you, you work it out. He's the only person who fits the psalm. Without the man's faithfulness, there will be no exaltation. So let me just read some of these verses from Psalm ninety-one. Because he loves us, says the Lord. That's referring to ultimately to Jesus because he loves us I will loves me sorry because he loves me I will rescue him I will protect him for he acknowledges my name he will call on me and I will answer him I will be with him in trouble I will deliver him and honor him with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation of course Jesus did find himself in trouble and he did call out to God in trust and God did deliver him and show him his salvation. If you're thinking, you know, before, that, you know, that it's, it's, there's a certain unfairness about the righteous one being punished. Um, remember the resurrection of the righteous one. Remember that the resurrected Christ is, he doesn't just sort of stumble back to some kind of half-life that he then lives. He is also then the glorified Christ, the ascended Christ, the one who receives all of God's authority. So it's not just this kind of hair-raising um, resuscitation, will he be okay, you know. No, this is the divinely promised vindication of God's man. His exaltation is on view in many places in the Bible. It's not a surprise in one sense when you look back and you see them. And one of the most interesting places I find is Daniel 7. Uh, that's another one of those chapters worth, um, worth having in your head. Uh, there's this vision. Daniel uh, sees a vision of a son of man, that is just a human being, entering the throne room of God. And he approaches God and he receives all of God's authority over all of creation. That's not a bad gift. All of God's authority over all of creation. 
And then the same thing is on view in Revelation chapter 5 at the other end of the Bible in the picture of heaven again at the end of time. And there's only one, uh, the only one with the authority to wrap up human history and to receive the worship of all creation. The only one is this lamb that is standing on the throne of God and it's got a serious looking wound and the wound indicates that it has been previously killed. And he's the, he's the one with authority. So, so when Jesus uh, says to his own disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel, after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, this is what he's talking about. The exaltation of God's man. Don't miss what's happening here. He's not just getting a promotion. It's not just a queen's honor or something. He is receiving the universe as his possession. Jesus, this is, I think this is one of the key points here. Jesus doesn't just own creation because he made it as God. He owns it because he is man. Jesus doesn't just own creation because he's God and made it. He owns it because he is man. Does that seem a little unusual? But it was always the plan that man be the ruler of the universe. It's in Genesis 1. You know, we are, we are all created with the image of God and we were all tasked to rule creation in Genesis 1. But we stuffed it up. We failed. Jesus doesn't. He doesn't fail. He fulfills all creation. So I've raised the question of who Jesus is and why we worship him. Is he God? Is he man? Or is he God-man? There are no simple explanations when it comes to the eternal, infinite God. He does have a, a, a dual nature, as we call it, man and God. I, I'm not sure we'll ever quite get our heads around what infinity actually means. But there are things we can say about Jesus. He has a divine nature and he has a human nature. And he's not 50-50, it's not like he's half God, half man. He is God the Son, you know, really totally God, uh, who took on human flesh, you know, real, totally human, real temptations. He's totally God and he's totally man. And the point is here, there is a lot about Jesus that makes him worthy of our worship, don't you think? There's a lot that makes him worthy of our complete loyalty our total obedience, our deep and personal love. So when we're thinking about what Christianity is about, it's not just about complicated concepts. You know, in some ways I've tried to get us to think differently about it, but um, in some ways it's, it's about a relationship with an extraordinary person. A real man, God's man, still alive today, but hidden from us for a time. A man who didn't use his divinity to push human beings around, but who used his humanity to draw us into his divinity. And if we put our trust in Jesus, we are connected to him for eternity. All the good things that he receives are ours too. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount? It was Jesus who said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
we will inherit the earth with him. So I don't know how new you are to the ideas of Christianity. There is beauty and wonder beyond our comprehension. But it's also ridiculously simple. God wants you. He wants you to trust him as a heavenly father providing for your needs. He wants you to open up yourself to him. He wants you to ask him what he wants of your life. He wants you to admit that on your own you've not lived up to your creator's design. He wants you to admit that you need him. He wants you to admit that you have ignored him, that you've tried to live your life your own way. I have. We all have. And now you'd like to trust him. And you'd like to begin a, a new journey or, re or recommence your journey with Jesus in the driver's seat of your life. The message of Christianity is that trusting in Jesus is the only hope for human beings. So join me in trusting in Jesus. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Lord God, as we think of our wonderful Savior, Jesus, our Father, we thank you for sending your Son. We thank you for loving your Son. We thank you for laying down his life for us. And our Lord Jesus, we thank you for laying your life down for us. We thank you for succeeding and for persevering and trusting your Heavenly Father where we fail. We thank you for persevering to the bitter end, the very, very bitter end. And yet we rejoice in your resurrection, in your glorification, your ascension, uh, and to your um, inheriting the universe as your possession. And we trust in you. We are sorry for the ways that we have lived our lives with ourselves at the center and we've just ignored God and we, we continue to do it. We are sorry. Please help us. We entrust ourselves to you again now and, uh, and pray that you would um, work in us and change us and grow in us that deep trust. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.